Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Within Europe itself, or within the United States itself, I think we would do better to have a much more focused surveillance and policing approach. So instead of tarring a whole community with the same brush, we kind of hone in much more on who is actually inciting violence, who is actually financing violence, who's actually preparing acts of violence, rather than this much broader idea of, of who has an ideology that we disagree with, right? which is, I think, a, a counterproductive approach. But I think, ultimately, the solution to this conflict is going to lie in at the global level or on the foreign policy level. And on that, it's about how we direct our foreign policy towards the Middle East. You know, a, a genuine commitment to democracy and human rights in the region would be the long-term solution here. What is the solution to Muslim radicalisation? And is the role of Islam exaggerated? Hello, good evening, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. Well, in tonight's show, Italian-American writer Fred Gardaff and Tim Grinland discuss the writer who's been described as the greatest shaman of the paranoid school of American fiction, Don DeLillo, and has the West ignited Muslim terrorism. Political writer and commentator Aaron Kundnani defends his provocative new book, The Muslims Are Coming, Islamophobia, Extremism and the Domestic War and Terror. This is a show about insiders and outsiders, terrorism and fear, craft and some quality prophetic fiction. But first, do all plots lead to death? Don DeLillo is one of America's greatest anti-authoritarian and anti-establishment writers. Born in the Bronx in 1936, his absurdist edgy books focus on themes of public anxiety, consumerism, individuality and technological progress. Don rose to prominence in the late 1980s when his eighth novel, White Noise, won the National Book Award for Fiction. Now Don's best-selling books include Libra, Running Dog, Underworld, Falling Man, Point Amiga, Americana and Mout 2, which was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and won Don the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction. So why is this imaginative, gritty and visionary writer who has dreamt up some of the most iconic characters in American fiction more praised than read? Well, to answer this question, Fred Gardaff, Distinguished Professor of English and Italian-American Studies at Queen's College, New York, and Tim Grinland, a PhD candidate in the School of English at Trinity College, Dublin, joined me to discuss this maverick of American fiction. I asked Fred, is it fair to describe Don DeLillo as one forceful, intense and, well, slightly paranoid writer? Forceful, intense, yes. Paranoid, I think he is the complete opposite of paranoid. I think what he does in his work is he projects the paranoia that comes for people who believe in, in, in the kind of uh, uh, what we would call dime store philosophy that seems to run America, whether it's through Madison Avenue and the advertising, which he dealt with in his first novel, Americana, or it's, it's the kind of politics that you know tends to, to lead people to you know believe you know to, to kind of voice their belief 
in, in a solid, uh, you know, kind of a single philosophy that this is what America is all about. Uh, DeLillo goes against all that. He, he does not want to belong to any group. I approached him once and I said, uh, you know, you're an Italian-American writer. He says, no, I'm a writer. I, I refuse to belong to groups. Uh, at one time, he produced a business card with, the, with, with his name on it, Don DeLillo. I don't want to talk about it. Um, and that seems to be his carrying card. He, he, he wants to write. He doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't, you know, in Underworld, he got a million-dollar advance for, for that book, which it, uh, was un, unheard of at the time. And uh, for the first time, he had to go out and promote the book, and he hated it. He hated going out and promoting the book. And that's why people don't know him. He, he, you know, there's no paparazzi hanging around DeLillo's house in Bronxville, New York. Uh, waiting for him to come out to take a picture and, and to spread his notoriety around. He hides away from that. He wants nothing to do with that. He lives in his writing while he's writing. But possibly you know? because he's such an outsider in how he lives and breathes, that's what makes him write such brilliant books because he presents the outside take. He's anti-establishment. He looks at things right. so very differently, doesn't he? Absolutely. And he consumes, he's constantly consuming the, the, the very culture that he's criticizing, but he's not a part of it. In other words, he's, he's not, you know, he's not somebody they go to whenever there's a social problem in the United States. Well, Mr. DeLillo, what do you think of this? Uh, he does it through his writing. And I find, even as a writer myself, when I talk about things, I dissipate the power of what I could possibly communicate in writing. And so for me, I, I, I do a lot of talking because I'm a professor uh, and I find that I have to write about the opposite things or things that I don't talk about in order to have power over them. And I, and I began to see that later in life. And, and DeLillo now is in his late 70s, and um, he, he's just as powerful a writer now as he ever was. And I think and he's just as, you know, just as a, much of a recluse. I mean, he doesn't – he's not like J.D. Salinger or somebody who hit out and, and created this mystery about him. He just doesn't go out. He doesn't participate in, in, in the kind of dialogues that, that tend to make people think, okay, I understand this. Let's move on. DeLillo does not move on. He stays tuned to, to the major problems. And if you look at the work that he's done on terrorism, for example, throughout his life, the, the, the way he's looked at sports, the way he's looked at rock and roll, as far as I'm concerned, he is the greatest newscaster of America that we've ever had. And it's uncanny what he taps into, isn't it? Because if you look at Underworld, if you look at White Noise, and then you look at some of the recent events in political history, it's frightening, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, his idea that all plots lead to death, you know, bring us in every one of his his novels, which have plots, uh, to the death of something. It may may not be the death of a human being as it is in, in Libra, you know, I mean, one of my favorite scenes is uh, the opening of the novel when he and his when some car- some terrorists go out to a golf course and they start slaughtering golfers. And this is long before uh, 9/11. This is long before terrorism really uh, has taken. And he's he's really looking at these things that have have it's almost it's almost prophetic, and, and looking at this is the impact terrorism is going to have. And Tim, his characters aren't for everybody because if you look at the types of people that he writes about, they don't make for very comfortable reading, do they? No, absolutely not. I mean, you look at a a novel like Libra and he's 
taking a deeply unsympathetic character from from history and a character who he knows and we know from the beginning is maybe not not knowable almost the whole point of 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 his portrayal of Oswald is that we can't look into someone's character and know exactly what's going on Delille is interesting in that he's he's not a writer who is who we look to for character or plot in a way and that's what why some people sometimes find his work a bit cold or, or, or can't tune into what he's doing. He's worked from the beginning with the idea of the novelist as someone whose job is it is to tune into the sort of hidden frequencies of the culture and the forces that are going on in the world. And he uses the novel almost as a form of cultural commentary rather than as a, a storytelling device, which isn't to say that he never writes great plots or great characters, but at some fundamental level, he's less interested in that than he is in just writing great sentences and observing what's going on in the world. Now, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned to me about one of the things that attracted you to DeLillo was his view on technology and where it's all going and how he writes it. Yeah, I mean, he he is a writer who, uh, one of the many reasons that DeLillo seems, uh, in a way, the the older we get and the more his, the older he gets and the further his career goes, the more of an almost prophetic writer he seems. Mm-hmm is the fact that he was writing about technology and the impact of technology in in day-to-day lives back in the 70s in ways that seem really relevant today. The relationship between technology and fear, the way the more complicated technology gets, the more we're dependent on it, and visual technology particularly. Uh, He's a writer who has always been fascinated by the image by television, by the language of advertising, by by cinema. And he uses those rhythms and those kind of ways of presenting reality in his work consistently. And he's always writing about the way that we relate to the image and the way we're defined by images from the 20th century onwards in a way that we never were before we could see ourselves on film. It could be argued, though, that he's alienated some readers by doing that. Do you think that's a fair criticism? Maybe. I mean, that's a part of his method is the way that he shows that we are culturally made up as as human beings, the way culture sort of seeps into us and determines the way we live. In that way, he's not, as I said, he's not that interested in making sympathetic characters in every novel. And he's a novelist who demands that you might go for long stretches of a novel without necessarily experiencing or following a a likeable character in the sense that a a lot of novelists would try to present a really sympathetic or or identifiable character. He's original, Fred, isn't he? Oh, no, by all means. And I think one of the things that he points out in his work, you know, America can only be saved by that which it is trying to destroy. So he he, he points out these incredible lessons, uh, and he's done so, whether the issues have been race. If you look at what's happening in America today, the little has dealing with these, 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 you know, these kind of group-leading philosophies that, that people tend to identify with, and, and, and it, 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 it creates the very way they perceive the world. And he breaks through that. So he, one time I went to a, 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 a Delillo uh, book signing in Chicago, and there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And I looked around, and the majority of the audience was, was white young males in the audience. Um, that's interesting, I, I mean, isn't I, it? That's, it's surprising in one way, but it's interesting, isn't it? Right, right. But, but, but I have to say, when I teach Delillo in my classroom, 
uh, he, he gets a much different uh, response than, than Hemingway, who's, uh, who has a similar kind of audience. Uh, although Hemingway's audience is probably, you know, a little bit more conservative in a sense. But, you know, DeLillo, he, he's, he's, he's definitely original. And, and he has his fingers on the pulse uh, of that which produces power. And he gives us ways of looking into these power systems and, and taking them apart. You know, whether the, the power comes from in great, you know, the rock and roll of Great Jones Street or the power of uh, uh, mathematics and Ratner's star. Uh, you know, it's just I always look forward to the very next DeLillo novel. I'm not, I'm not such a big fan of his plays, but his novels to me. Uh, teach teach me things about, you know, the America that I grew up in, the America that I've responded to, the America that I've that I've, that I've come to see, I learned uh, to see in, in one way, and he teaches us to see in another way. But he's chilly, Fred. You know, he's 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 not for everybody. There's a shadiness. There's such an uncomfortability sometimes when you're reading him. You have to brace yourself, don't you? Well, you do have to brace yourself, but. But you know, you know what he has, and which, which I, I don't think a lot of people have perceived this incredible humor. It's 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 a it's a black humor in a sense, but it's it's this incredible humor. Like you know, how absurd is all of this? How absurd is? And 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 the best example of that, I think, is is or one of the best is Libra. You know, look, look, let's look at this this idea of who killed Kennedy and. Why Kennedy was killed, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what the uh, the Oliver Stone reaction was to 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 Libra, though he he did use a lot of it in, in creating his JFK film. Uh, there there was some talk early on that Delola was going to write the screenplay, but she's not, you know, it never worked out. But the idea was this this uh, problem he had with Delola was that it was too it, it, it was too. Uh, it was too humorous. And I don't mean humorous in a funny way. I mean humorous in a, in a, in a kind of a scary way. Terror, um, you mean? Terror, exactly. There you go. Exactly. Well, isn't that great? I think so. <laughs> I think so. So just when you think you have your finger on this is who Don DeLillo is as a writer, he, he kind of leaves that alone and emerges somewhere else. You know, if an American was going to... Uh, win a Nobel Prize for Literature, it, it, to me, he's, he's the number one candidate. Certainly, if you can give one to Toni Morrison, I think you can give one to Don DeLillo for the American. To me, at least to me, that's, that he's, he's my number one candidate. That's an interesting point now, Tim. Why do you think it is that maybe DeLillo has won a good few awards, but he's not out there in the public imagination the way some other American writers are? He's known amongst a certain few and loved. Others just can't stand him. Yeah, he is sometimes called a writer's writer. He is one of those writers who other writers look up to. And I think that's partly because he doesn't put himself out there. He's never really made any concerted effort to be a kind of public figure, a public intellectual. He doesn't write a whole lot of essays. He There is something kind of slightly monkish about the way he has just dedicated himself to almost exclusively to the novel as a form and just continued working without uh, without really without really uh, making himself a media figure. I mean, it occurred to me looking at his bibliography, preparing for this, that that most writers would you know sacrifice a limb to have the incredible list of novels that he has under his belt. He's been so consistent and so disciplined in the way he has sort of carried on this fictional project. 
But you think that because he's so artful, he can get away with not doing all the publicity because he doesn't really have to work it because his books stand up in their own right. Yeah, to some degree. I mean, he's um, he also was, I suppose, um, came to success before the uh, modern age of, of social media and so on. And in that way, he's he said that he would find it very difficult as a young writer nowadays where there's much more demand to have an instant success. Writers are much more likely to be a, a sort of obliged to, to teach, uh, even if they're even if that's not their main focus. I mean, he's he's in a way had the had the had the discipline to keep working and not engage with the media, but also had in some ways the luxury of having built up a, a good body of work before the media age and the media obsession over writers really took over the way it has done in the past, say, 15 years or so. And Fred, who do you think he's influenced? I think I think he's had an incredible influence on a lot of writers, most of whom, if you tried to imitate DeLillo, I think you would fail. And I think the reason is, is because DeLillo, one of the reasons is because DeLillo is a person, not a personality. He doesn't get shaped by the work that he creates. He keeps creating and keeps changing. And so I don't know, I really don't know of a writer who has kind of followed his, his you know, I keep thinking of writers in the past. He's influenced the way I rejoice. You know, so he's had that kind of retro influence on me. I, I, I read Joyce when I was young, uh, or, or even Yeats. I mean, the, the politics of the Irish writers actually, uh, to me, is, is, is much closer to, to DeLillo than, than any of the other contemporary writers in the United States. And, and certainly any of the other mainstream traditional writers that we read. I mean, he's as elusive to me as Joyce can be. Um, certainly he's, he's not as, uh, uh, I think he, he experiments more with ideas than with form. I don't know I could I could spend hours just you know looking at the structure of his of his paragraphs of his sentences. I mean he's he is such a careful craftsman. I I, I have no idea. Uh, I, I the one time I did meet him and talk to him, he he told me that he never used uh, a typewriter. He uses he only he only handwrites. He reminds me of an artisan, somebody who just sits there and does his work and. And, and, and uh, when he's done, he moves on to something else because what he's just finished bores him. It's hard. It's very hard for me to say, well, if you like uh, this writer, you'll love DeLillo. I'm interested to know, how friendly was he when you've met him? I first met him at, in Chicago when Underworld came out, and I had written this chapter about him, which identified him as an Italian-American writer, and... Uh, he, I don't. He didn't like that because I had written him a letter because I wanted to republish one of his short stories in an anthology. And he says, "No, whatever I've done in the past does not get redone. Uh, you know, those, those stories were served their purpose. I don't want them to become a part of any anthology." And then he wrote me in this letter. He wrote. He said, "I don't believe in groups. I don't believe in group identity. I don't. You know." And then about ten years later. We were both published in an anthology, and to my surprise, he came to the reading in New York. <clears throat> the, the whole group went out for dinner, and I had, happened to be sitting across from him. And he said, you know, I'm second thinking what you said about my early work. He was much more friendly the second time I met him. And, 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 but he's not the kind of person that I don't know if I would like to <clears throat> hang out with Don DeLolo. Uh, you wouldn't have a glass of wine and a pizza, oh, no? Oh, yeah. 
No, no, I would. I, I would. I prefer like a nice... Uh, Pepperoni, know, a nice, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pepperoni pizza. Um, yeah, but, but, I, but he's intense. He is intense. The eyes, when they look at you, uh, look right through you, and you don't know if he's ignoring you or if he's examining you. You know, I didn't really see him smile. He's, he's in, you know, he's incredibly good shape. You know, just a, a wonderfully dynamic guy. But it was, he was very slight. You know, very, you know, he wasn't pushy. He wasn't. Uh, Loud, you know the way you think. Some Italian Americans, they get a couple of drinks, they get loud or something. No, he was he was who he is, I guess. <laughs> Tim, best book. What would it be for you? Uh, it's a really hard question. I think his kind of run of novels from the early eighties, with the names up until Underworld in nineteen ninety seven, is fantastic. And I could almost pick any of them. I'll, I'll say White Noise because that was the first one I read, and because it's maybe one of the best novels for seeing this sense of humor that that Fred mentioned uh, the uh, the dialogue in that novel the sort of absurdity of the way he represents the kind of mass media age um just these wonderfully funny uh, odd moments the scene where the characters go to see the most photographed barn in America uh, and this is this sort of meditation on the the postmodern age where the barn is the most photographed barn because everyone keeps taking photographs of it and there's just these wonderful little illustrations of madness of the world that we live in so that for me that's the one I would I would go back to uh, Can you compare him to any other writer or do you think what Fred said there about he stands alone? I think he's really unique and pretty um, pretty distinctive I mean like the way he writes dialogue for example is, is just so distinctive it's hard to think of anyone else I think in, the, in terms of the question you were asking about influence he was really influential on the generation of writers that came up in the 80s and 90s so I'm thinking of someone like Jonathan Franzen or David Foster Wallace. It's hard to imagine a novel like um, Franz's novel, The Corrections, for example. I, I think something like that. The model of the big social novel that still takes on ideas about technology and about global politics and about the media, I think that that model of what fiction can do really comes from DeLillo. And I think he was hugely influential for those kind of novelists and even female novelists like uh, Zadie Smith, Jennifer Egan, novelists who've written those big, ambitious novels, sometimes they're called systems novels or encyclopedic novels, but these ambitious novels that try to deal with the culture and uh, not just as a storytelling device, but as a way of really thinking about the forces that, that shape the world. And Fred, if you were to break in to Don DeLillo, what would be the break-in novel? You know, I always start at the beginning. If you look at Americana, he he didn't call that book America. He called it Americana. And Americana, to me, is a collection of things that, that kind of signify America, that kind of represents America. And he takes all of those things. You know, if it's a little too early, then I, w- I, I would agree with Tim. I would say White Noise certainly is the one that gets students going crazy. I, I, I would go with, you know, if you're going to walk into the little, if you walk, you know, white noise, because white noise will lead you forward to things like Underworld. But if you, and if you want to go back and see the kinds of uh, where white noise comes from, there's, there's a great path all the way back to Americana. And if you're not up for a complete and utter terror and fear and the sense of the paranoid, I guess you just don't read DeLillo, is that it? No, no, you could, well, I don't know, I guess Ratner Star is, is, but there's terror everywhere in life, you know, and it's not the boogeyman, it's not some kind of, you know, uh, 
sci-fi movie that you know you know no this is he makes fiction of science he doesn't make science fiction in a sense you know DeLillo is, is he is not a PhD but he is he is I think he's the greatest scholar of American culture uh, whether it's science or film or sports or he tackles it all so I think but I think terror is 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 the other side of ecstasy Italian-American writer Fred Gardaff from Queen's College, New York and Tim Grinland from the School of English at Trinity College, Dublin. Fred's books include From Wise Guys to Wise Men, Masculinities and the Italian-American Gangster and The Art of Reading Italian America, published by Borgiera Press. OK, let's lighten the load a little and enjoy a bit of quality music. to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. OK, let's stick with the theme of fear and anxiety and meet with one of Britain's bravest political writers. Aaron Kuntnani was born in London, educated at Cambridge and holds a PhD from London Metropolitan University. Aaron moved to New York in 2010 on a fellowship with the Open Society Foundation and today teaches media, culture and communications at New York University. Aaron is the author of The End of Tolerance, Racism in 21st Century Britain, which was selected as a New Statesman Book of the Year in 2007. And he is the former editor of the journal Race and Class. Well, Aaron's latest book, the Muslims Are Coming challenges the official narrative of history and argues that radicalisation is a by-product of Western foreign policy 
and that structural racism against Muslims throughout the world is rampant. I have to say, this is a profound and hugely courageous book, which will no doubt shock and upset some people. In The Muslims Are Coming, Aaron writes, In practice, the classifying of Muslims into extremists and moderate is highly unstable. The boundary between the two is constantly shifting, putting modern Muslims in the precarious position of continually being scrutinised for evidence that they really have distanced themselves from Islamic ideology. The act of distinguishing a moderate from an extremist is not a matter of applying objective criteria such as whether or not one has advocated political violence against fellow citizens, but a complex hermeneutic of suspicion in which cultural, religious and political signifiers are parsed for signs of allegiance. Strong words indeed. Aaron opens his book with a hefty quote from German philosopher Walter Benjamin from his book on the concept of history, where he writes, The tradition of the oppressed teaches us that the emergency situation in which we live is the rule. I asked Aaron, is a war on terror founded on a fantasy? Yes, I, I would say it is founded on a fantasy. For the last 10 years at least, we've kind of had this story that governments, particularly in Europe, have told us, which is that terrorism is the result of interpreting Islam in a particular way. And so it's closely tied up with questions of religion, according to this official story, if you like. So then we get ourselves into a situation where we think that there's a problem with the entire Muslim community or that we need to divide up the Muslim community between moderates and extremists and based on some kind of religious category. And actually, The real problem here is nothing to do with religion, really. Religion is relatively secondary here. It's primarily a political problem. It's a problem of political conflicts taking place in the Middle East and a political issue between the West and the Middle East. And so we've kind of misrepresented what we're really dealing with here. Now, Aaron, you're challenging the official narrative on history at the moment and what's been happening. And some people would take huge exemption to the fact that you are basically saying the West has ignited Muslim terrorism. A lot of people would find that quite objectionable, if not offensive. What do you say to that? Well, the, you know, the primary responsibility for people who are carrying out acts of terrorism against civilians in, you know, in Europe, the terrorists themselves, that's obviously right. And those acts would obviously have to be unconditionally condemned. But going forward from that, we, if we're going to try and create a situation of peace, around these areas and we want to have some kind of analysis some kind of understanding of what is causing these acts of violence to take place and it's not enough just to say well these are evil men who are carrying out these acts we need to go a bit deeper than that if we're going to prevent them and that's a fairly straightforward thing to say i would have thought and so then when when you look into the you know the series of events that has led up to these acts of violence not just in terms of the individual biography but in terms of the wider social and political context then of course you know western foreign policy does become implicated. You know, in, in the United Kingdom, there were no terrorist acts of this kind before Britain's involvement in the war in Iraq. So what you're trying to say there is that radicalism is a byproduct of Western foreign policy. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, I mean, to put it in a nutshell, I mean, there's obviously uh, other factors. You know, some of the people who are, who are travelling 
to join ISIS in Syria right now were children when, when Britain was involved in the invasion in Iraq. So it's complicated. No part of the motivation is to do with a sense of adventure, maybe, and a you know kind of boyish enthusiasm about participating in an armed conflict. But but essentially, we can't exclude the the role of our own government's foreign policy in creating the political contexts in the Middle East that make these kinds of forms of violence more likely. Arun, what about the idea of alienation? Because if we look at it, the multiculturalist project hasn't completely and utterly failed. So if you take that in consideration, how do things balance up? Well, you know, I think we've had this problem since 9-11 that there's been a kind of rhetoric, particularly from conservatives, you know, that multiculturalism doesn't work and that it's not possible to build a society where people from different ethnic backgrounds live uh, happily together in the same society. In actual fact, that is entirely possible. And, you know, I, I've spent most of my life living in London, where by and large that works quite well. But what's happened is, is that the, the idea that multiculturalism doesn't work, the idea that somehow Muslims are incompatible with Western values, all of these kind of messages that have been sent out um, over at least the last 10 years have created a climate in which I think for many young Muslims in Europe, there's a sense in which there, there is an alienation. There is a sense in which they feel second-class citizens, feel like society is organized in various ways to exclude them. And this kind of rhetoric constantly coming from politicians of, you know, that saying that there is a Muslim problem is incredibly damaging and counterproductive. It, it does lead to a situation in which the arguments being made by groups like ISIS that, you know, there is no place for you in Europe, come to join us in, with ISIS. That argument becomes more compelling when it's reinforced by people like David Cameron saying, you know, young Muslims are a threat. That sounds to me like you're arguing there is some form of structural racism against Muslims in Britain today. I think there is a, a, a kind of systematic uh, form of racism directed at, at Muslims. It takes different forms in different parts of Western Europe. But certainly... You know, that, that is a reality, I think, that, that is there. You know, the, the way in which Muslim communities, for example, are policed and the way in which the criminal justice system deals with Muslim communities is incredibly damaging and, and shaped by uh, a kind of institutional racism in those institutions. So, yes, I mean, I think that is a serious and deep Now, I can understand when you talk about all the fear and anxiety that's been developed because of all these intense surveillance techniques. But we're living in a nightmare scenario where we've ISIS blowing up innocent civilians. So there is the argument that when you say that surveillance has got out of control in America, there is the argument that we need surveillance because we're living through chaos. You know, I think the point I'd want to make in response to that is that the... Actually, terrorist incidents are incredibly rare. It feels like they're happening all the time because they get a lot of media coverage. But in the United States, you're far more likely to die from being struck by lightning than you are from from terrorism, which doesn't mean to say that we don't need to take terrorism very seriously, but we need to get it in proportion. And the second thing is, because of the rarity, actually, of terrorist attacks, trying to identify the next terrorist attack is... Um, it's what in the, the jargon is called a black sheep phenomenon. You're looking for a very rare thing or you're looking for the needle in the haystack. And, and it doesn't help to find that needle in the haystack if you make your haystack much, much bigger by gathering a lot more data about huge numbers of people for whom there's no sus- genuine suspicion. Right? And that's kind of the, the problem that has, has emerged 
since 9-11 in the United States is that now, you know, partly we know this through Edward Snowden, 